You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Romans 1. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been from prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Uh, Before you ask, yes, that is the same passage we read last week and the week before, but today we're going to take it from a slightly different angle because as we go through the rest of the book of Romans, what we've got to understand is everything else Paul's about to write is coming out of this introductory thought. Within this introductory thought, there are multiple streams that if we don't grasp them, we're going to be lost the rest of the book. So we're going to take some time today to focus yet again on this passage and look at it from a different angle. Now, if you're new to Mosaic, my name is Brett Milliken, one of the pastors here. I'm actually preaching today because Pastor Morgan is in Kentucky at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is receiving his master's degree this week in intercultural studies. It's a tremendous accomplishment. And so we just want to say, Pastor Morgan, if you're listening on the podcast, congratulations. We're proud of you and all the hard work you put in and the commitment to, to becoming a better leader and serving us as a people better. And we greatly appreciate it and can't wait to have you home safely. Now, we're at the front end of a new series called The Gospel is for Everyone, walking through the book of Romans. But what do we mean when we say the gospel is for everyone? I mean, that word for can have lots of different meanings, can it? For example, for can be used to indicate reach or direction. For example, if I say this gift is for you or I bought flowers for my wife, it's meaning it's communicating, indicating something that you're meant to take possession of. So when we say the gospel is for everyone... We're meaning that the gospel doesn't discriminate. It's not just for one culture or one people group in one part of time. The gospel is meant to be available to all. It is for everyone. But for can also be used to indicate purpose or design. For example, in my closet right now, I have lots of different pairs of shoes. I've got a pair of cleats that I wear for running on the grass. I've got basketball shoes that I wear for running on a wood floor. I've got a pair of blue suede pumas that I wear for fashionable comfort. And I've got my fancy shoes that I wear for preaching, okay? Each pair of shoes is for a specific purpose. Each pair enables me to do something that the other pairs do not. That's function. That's purpose. So the gospel is for everyone, but the gospel is also for everyone. It's not just available to all to believe. It also has a purpose for all who believe. The gospel is intended for all. But it's also needed by all. But what is it needed for? What does the gospel do and why do we all need it to do what it does in our lives? 
Well, in another letter Paul wrote to the group of Christians in Corinth, he summarized the gospel of what it does by saying this. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul tells us the purpose of the gospel is, is to reconcile. It's to restore us back to a relationship both to our creator and to the purpose for which he created us. But what is that purpose? Well, we see that in verse 7 of today's passage where Paul starts out by saying to all those in Rome who are loved by God and what? Called to be saints. Now, the word saints literally means the set apart ones or to use a church word, the holy people. That's what Paul's, who Paul's talking to here. It means to be separated from one thing and intended for another thing. Now, in week one of this series, we looked at how Paul introduces himself as one who has been set apart for the gospel. And Pastor Morgan did an excellent job of talking about what the gospel separates us from. But Paul's thought doesn't stop there. He's not only telling us the gospel separates us from an old way of living. He's also saying it separates us for a new way of living. But what is that new way? And why do we need the gospel in order to be restored to it? That's what I want to look at today. What does it mean for us to be the set-apart ones, to be God's holy people? And I'll look at it through three lenses, three things the gospel enables us to offer, which are really just our three core values here at Mosaic of worship, community, and mission. And we'll look at what the gospel enables us to offer the world, what it enables us to offer one another, and lastly, what it enables us to offer God. Now, what do I mean by something to offer the world? Well, right after Paul reminds his community that they are called to be God's holy people, the set-apart ones, he says this in verse 8. First, I thank my God, Jesus Christ, for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. Now, the English translation here doesn't quite capture what the original Greek is, is wanting to say. So on the surface, it looks like what Paul's saying is, I'm, I'm thankful that you're out preaching the gospel, that you're out evangelizing people. And though that was probably happening, that's not what he's actually saying here. In the original language, what he's saying is closer to this. I thank my God because your conviction of the truth in the gospel is being made known and celebrated by people all over the world. In other words, Paul is saying that these Christians in Rome, fueled by their faith and conviction in the gospel, are living life in such a way that they've developed a reputation around the world that people that don't even believe in Jesus are celebrating the way they're seeing them live life. Pretty cool. Now, let me give you an example of what this looks like. In 130 AD, just 80 years after Paul wrote this letter, a wealthy Greek man by the name of Diognetus, who had heard stories of this new sect called Christianity, hired a researcher to go and and investigate this group of people called Christians because he was so intrigued by what he was hearing about them and wanted to know what makes these people tick. And in response, here's what the researcher writes in his letter back to Diognetus. For the Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country nor language, nor the customs which they observe, but inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry as you all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and yet at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, and yet are persecuted by all. They are unknown, and yet condemned. They're put to death, yet restored to life. They're poor, and yet make many rich. 
They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. Isn't that beautiful? See, this is what Paul is saying when he says, your faith is being proclaimed all over the world. He's saying even non-believers are hearing stories about how you all are living life and they can't stop talking about it. So what Paul is saying, these set-apart ones in Rome had to offer the world. is the same thing that these set-apart ones in 130 AD had to offer the world, which is the same thing that genuinely Christian communities have had to offer the world for nearly 2,000 years, including us. It's love. Justice, equality, compassion, generosity, honor, truth, belonging. Now think about it. Those are all qualities celebrated in just about every culture throughout history. And why is that? Well, if the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, when it says that we've been made and formed in the image and likeness of God, and if God is all of those things, he is love, he is justice, he is compassion, then it means that there's an imprint on the soul of every human being that recognizes those things as good and right. There's something that comes alive in us when we see those things active in our world. It's like our hearts are tuning forks. And when we see or experience that for which we are made, something inside of us begins to resonate. Something comes alive. Something stands up to applaud and celebrate that those things are good and right and true and beautiful. So this is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5 when he said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He's not saying everyone's going to come to faith when they see the way we live. What he's saying is when they recognize it's good and right, they're acknowledging that God's way is best. So when we come together as God's holy people to reflect who God is to the world, the world takes notice. And even if they don't agree with what we believe, they at least acknowledge that what they're seeing is good and true and right. And in doing so, they unknowingly acknowledge that God's way and God's kingdom is what their hearts are really longing for. See, wouldn't it be amazing if that's what churches in America were known for? Wouldn't it be awesome if people, upon seeing the way we love and serve and sacrifice for others, applauded and celebrated what they see us doing? So that's part of what being God's holy people is all about. That's what it looks like. Being set apart means that we become a different kind of community than what the world is accustomed to seeing. See, for thousands of years now, people have sought to elevate themselves at the expenses of others, haven't they? The Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. Hitler sought to destroy the Jews and conquer Europe. We've seen slavery and segregation right here in our own nation. We've seen the Hutus seeking to wipe out the Tutsi in Rwanda. Whatever it is, the human heart seems bent on destroying that which is not like itself. Yet Paul is telling us here that we have to offer the world a different way of living, a different kind of community. I'm not sure if you caught it in the quote of the letter to Diognetus, but the writer wrote this. He said, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. You see, the gospel gives us a new citizenship, a new vision for humanity. Not one based on skin color or language or political party but based on God's grace and love that calls us to be his set apart ones. So this is why we do missions here. 
It's why we serve and join with our friends in the homeless community. It's why we have people that play in basketball leagues and coach Little League together. And why we do community groups at people's homes and in their neighborhoods rather than asking you to come back to this facility during the week. We want to put the gospel on display for the world to see. But if we're going to demonstrate that to the world out there, we first have to experience it with one another in here. Which brings us to point number two, something to offer one another. Verse 11 and 12, Paul goes on to say this, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Let me ask you this, what does it mean to encourage someone? Well, it means to strengthen them. It means to instill, to stir up confidence and courage within them, to to push them on to do things they never thought they were capable of doing. Now, we're all familiar with the courage that a lady named Rosa Parks displayed on December 1st, 1955, when she refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. But what you may not know is where she got the courage to do what she did. See, five months earlier, on March 2nd, 1955, a 15-year-old girl by the name of Claudette Colvin boarded a similar bus in Montgomery, Alabama with a group of her classmates. They had just let out of class from the all-black school that they were relegated to attend, a class where their teacher had just finished teaching them the history of Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and all the brave things that they did to stand against slavery and discrimination in their own day. It was hot. These girls were tired of walking, and so when the bus pulled up next to them, they decided to get on. A few stops later, the bus had filled up, and a group of white students got on. Now, with no more seats available, the bus driver turned to Claudette and her friends and demanded that they give up their seats for these white students. As Claudette explained it, she said this, He wanted me to give up my seat for a white person. And I would have done it for an elderly person, but this was a young white woman. Three of the students had got up reluctantly, and I remained sitting next to the window. The young woman stood in the aisle as they arrived at the next stop where a squad car was waiting. Police officers boarded the bus, handcuffed Claudette, knocked her books off her lap and onto the floor, and as witnesses described, manhandled her off the bus and into the back seat of the car. She was driven to a local adult jail where she was placed in a cell with nothing more than a broken sink and a cot with no mattress for the next three hours until her mom and her youth pastor were able to come and bail her out. Claudette was actively involved in her church and was an active participant in a student group that was hosted by the NAACP at that time. The leader of that student group a woman named Rosa Parks, who, inspired by Claudette and her courage, would find herself in an almost exact situation five months later. And following Claudette's example, she refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, when asked about her encounter on the bus, this is what Claudette said. Whenever people ask me, why didn't you get up when the bus driver asked you? I said, it felt as though Harriet Tubman's hands were pushing me down on one shoulder and Sojourner Truth's hands were pushing me down on the other shoulder. I felt inspired by these women because my teacher taught us about them in so much detail. What happened in that moment? Well, the actions of Tubman and Truth encouraged a teacher by reminding her that she was worthy of love regardless of what the world said. That teacher in turn then encouraged her students, reminded them that you're worthy of love regardless of what the world says. In turn, one of those girls found the strength that it took to take a stand for all those who had come behind her, which in turn inspired and encouraged Rosa Parks to find the strength to do the same, which would go on to spark an entire community to launch what we now know as the civil rights movement of the 1960s. So that's what encouragement looks like. It's when someone reminds us that we matter, that we're seen, that we're valued, that we're appreciated, that we're worthy of love. 
that we're not alone in this world. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to a small community of Christians who were living in the midst of a culture that oppressed them and hated them and, and sought to reject them in every way. And to those people, Paul says, oh, I long to see you, that I may strengthen you and that you may strengthen me because in the midst of feeling ostracized and alone, I see you remaining faithful to Jesus and you see me remaining faithful to Jesus. And together we remind one another that what we're doing matters, that we're seen, that we're loved, that we're valued. That is what we have to offer one another. Strength, hope, belonging, encouragement. That is what gospel community is all about. It's our commitment to to continually and unwaveringly gospel one another. So when we see someone sinking under the weight of life, we lock arms with them. We say, I'm with you. Jesus is with us. And we're going to get through this. When we see someone veering away from, from God's love and faith, because they, that, that thing or that person that they think is going to quiet the fear and the insecurities in their hearts, and we, we grab them and we look them in the eye and we say, don't do this. It's not worth it. Jesus is enough for you. It's walking with one another through the loss of a child. It's a community group paying someone's mortgage. It's us showing up at TGA to learn and grow together. It's celebrating and rejoicing with one another in the good times and serving one another, even if it's just taking someone a meal in their time of need. All things that I've seen happen here at Mosaic over the years. But to be that kind of of people who do that, the kind of people who strengthen one another and encourage one another requires intentionality. It requires intimacy and relationship. And that doesn't just happen because we run into each other on a Sunday morning. It doesn't just happen because we see each other every other Wednesday night at community group. That kind of strengthening only takes place when we open up our lives to one another. When we think about one another throughout the week. Which I know is easier said than done. I know for some of us, the the thought of letting people into our lives like that, that kind of intimacy is frightening because we've been hurt, been let down, we've been been disappointed. If that's you, then I'm sorry. I'm sorry that person said that thing or did that thing that made you feel that way. I'm sorry if I've ever done that. To any of you, which I'm sure I have. But listen, don't let the person who hurt you continue to hurt you now by keeping you in the prison of your own fear. Yes, those kinds of relationships are risky. When you step into truly a, a truly loving community of people, you will find life and healing. And the only way to know that you can trust someone with your heart is to do what? To start trusting them with your heart. And I promise you, there are people in this community that are trustworthy. I also know for some of us here that throughout the, the thought of pursuing these kinds of relationships seems impossible because, I mean, we're just way too busy. And I completely understand that sentiment as well. Listen, we have to stop letting the busyness and the distractions and the demands of life dictate our schedules, don't we? See, no one's ever going to be encouraged or, or strengthened because you spent more time at work or because you watched another episode on TV. And yes, what I'm talking about requires sacrifice. It requires some, some changes in what we do. But listen, love is a choice. And if we're going to truly love one another, then we have to choose to make space for that on our calendars, don't we? We have to choose to believe that the people God has called us to walk with are worthy of that kind of sacrifice. Because what the gospel enables us to offer one another isn't just our money or our food. It's ourselves. But we have to be willing to give it. Which brings me to my last point, something to offer God. Now for this, let's jump back up to the top of our passage in verse 7, where we once again read, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. 
Now, I don't have to be a prophet to know that at least half the people in the room right now are having silent debates with me in your mind telling me all the reasons why doing what I just talked about doing just isn't possible for you. I get it. You're unique. (laughs) And if I'm being honest, I actually debate myself with that all the time. I'm just too busy. But I know all the excuses that I tend to come up with are actually rooted in my own fears and insecurities and selfishness. And listen, I would rather spend my money and my time and my energy on things that make me happy and, and comfortable. Like, I'd rather be sitting on the sofa watching another episode of something on Netflix with my new iPhone, right? And I don't have the new iPhone, but I would rather have the new iPhone, right? That, that's what I'd rather be doing. But to be the holy people that God not only created us to be, but sent his son to reconcile and redeem us into being requires us getting outside of ourselves, Requires us not allowing the fear and insecurities and pursuit of comfort and selfishness to dictate our schedules, our relationships, or our choices. Requires a devotion to something, or or rather someone, bigger than ourselves. And that's where the gospel enables us to offer God our worship. You see, worship isn't just a style of music we listen to or an event that we attend. Worship is a lifestyle. It's where my heart and your heart are captivated by the glory of God above all else. Worship is when I make the conscientious decision to live in such a way that reflects the love of God to you rather than just living for myself. But that's a scary choice to make. That's surrendering our desires, our perceived happiness over to God, giving up control of our lives. That's a choice that requires trust. It requires faith. And here's where the beauty of the gospel is fully revealed. So when God calls us to be set apart, to be his holy ones, to give ourselves to him before everything else and to give ourselves to one another, He's not asking us to do something that he himself has not already done for us. As Paul wrote to that Christian community in Corinth, he said, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the gospel isn't just that you're a sinner who now gets to go to heaven thanks to what Jesus did. It's that Jesus came to be the the perfect reflection of God, the perfect set-apart one in our place. That he then willingly went to the cross to die the death that we deserved for hijacking God's design in our lives. And three days later, he rose again, conquering the power of sin, the power of death, the power of fear and insecurity in our lives. Not so that we could go to heaven, but so that heaven could come back to us. That we could once again be his holy people. See, Jesus gave himself fully to us that we might fully give ourselves to him. He set himself apart in God's wrath that we might be set apart in God's love. He was rejected so we might find a place to belong. He became weak so that we might be encouraged and strengthened. When you see that truth rightly, when your heart is moved to trust in that truth, then fear is replaced by unconditional love. And in that love, we are set free from the expectations of our culture. We're able to live life the way God designed it to be lived. We're able to become his holy people, his set-apart ones. See, this has been God's design from the beginning. He called Adam and Eve to come out and be his people. He called Noah and his family to come out and be his people. He called Abraham and Sarah and eventually the nation of Israel to come out and be my people to show the world who I am and what I'm all about. 
Then Jesus shows up on the scene, and what's the first thing he does? He goes around and he calls 12 men to come out and be his people. Then after he resurrects, before he ascends back to heaven, what does he do? He calls those men together. He says, now, go into all the nations and teach them how to be my people. This is God's design for the church. This is designed for you and for me and for us as his people. To live in such a way that reflects who he is and what his kingdom is all about for the rest of the world to see. To be a kind of people whose love for God and whose love for one another spills over through the way we love the world around us. I pray that's exactly who we can be and will commit to being at Mosaic Church. I hope you can say amen to that. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.